0: C.S. Lewis uh, wrote these words regarding choices, moral choices that we make. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I will reward you, and if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I don't think that's the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different, From what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing either into a heaven creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war, hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. Choices. Our choices matter. Uh, God gives to us choices. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, I put before you life and death. Choose life, the scripture says. And as we continue in the gospel of Matthew, we are in chapters 24 and 25, this Olivet Discourse, the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, approaching his cross, and he's preparing his disciples for his uh, departure And not only his departure, but he's preparing his disciples and every subsequent generation, including us, for his second coming. Much of the Olivet Discourse is about what is coming, that final day, that judgment day. And the question this morning of choices, the subject of choices, emerges. Uh, What do you choose to do with what God gives to you? What do you choose to do with what God entrusts uh, to you and to us as his people? Uh, This is the parable of the talents a well-known parable to many of, of God's people. So it's Matthew 25, it's verses 14 through 30. Listen now to God's word. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. Jesus continues. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master also said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has very strong language. We've we've heard it already earlier in the Olivet uh, Discourse. At the end of chapter uh, 24, cut him in pieces in verse 51, put him with the hypocrites in that place, there will be weeping and uh, gnashing of teeth. Well, Jesus is continuing to prepare his disciples for his coming again. And he's teaching them about waiting, how to wait. It's a theme that runs through this discourse that Jesus is giving. Different aspects of what it means to wait for the Lord. So we saw at the end of chapter 24, his teaching on waiting as faithful stewards who don't want to be surprised at at his return. Chapter 24, verse 42 and 45. Who's the faithful servant? He said, therefore stay awake, for you do not know the day that the Lord is coming. Then at the beginning of chapter 25, last week the parable of the young bridesmaids, or ten virgins, he taught about waiting with the wisdom to know that the master may be long delayed in his coming. Remember the five wise young bridesmaids. They took the extra oil, prepared for the long wait. But in this parable, the parable of the talents, there's a, 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 a focus shift. Here, it's how to wait as joyful servants who are called to increase the master's goods. How to engage and invest and even risk for the master's kingdom. So it turns out in this parable that waiting is not passive at all. Waiting here is all about activity, productivity. There's work to be done in this parable goods to oversee, assets to steward, even risks to be taken. So it begins in verse 14, where Jesus says, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, what's the it? Here in verse 14. It is the kingdom. If you go back to the first verse of 25, the parable of the ten virgins, he said the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. And now he's continuing. He says uh, it will be like, the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey. Another kingdom parable. And that language of a man going on a journey is the idea of an interim period of time. It's language of an interim. Uh, one author said, this man, this traveler, comes first to call servants to service, and then he'll come a second to check on the quality of their service. The first coming is a recruiting. The second is an accounting. And that's what we see in the story. And again, Jesus' teaching here has a sharpness and edge to it because he's not contrasting the, uh, the pious and the godly with the wildly wicked. The circle really comes in more narrow. He's focusing more on, we might say, the covenant community. Those who profess uh, faith in him. He's comparing people who appear very, very similar. That's what we saw last week with the parable of the ten virgins. All ten of the young bridesmaids, they all received In in, an invitation to the wedding, they all set out to meet the bridegroom. They all took their lamps. But in the end, five were foolish. They were excluded from the feast. They didn't truly know the bridegroom. The same is true in this parable. All three men are called by the master. They all agree. They're all three entrusted with his property. They're all given talents in which to be faithful. And so it's as Jesus compares these servants that we then see who's sincere and and who is counterfeit. So there's an edge to the teaching here because it causes a person, or should, to self-reflect. Who am I like in the story? Who am I like in the parable? Who do I desire to reflect in this parable? So Jesus compares these three servants. I want us to imagine two workers for a moment. Imagine a business owner giving two workers, two men, the same responsibility and work. The work is for one year, eight hours a day, five days a week. They are to take sheets of paper, trifold them, and stuff them into envelopes. Day after day, week after week, for an entire year. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds like my job. Well, that's the job. Over and over again, eight hours a day, all week long, for an entire year. These men are placed in separate rooms, the same size room, the same room temperature, same hours. All the conditions are the same except one slight difference. Before they begin their work, uh, the boss says to the first worker, at the end of this year, you're going to receive $50,000 for the work you've done. To the other person... The other worker, separately, he said to him, at the end of this year, you're going to receive $2 million. The men begin to set out in their work, and after about three weeks of work, they come together for lunch, and they're beginning to have some conversation. And the first worker is just frustrated. He can't stand the work. He doesn't want to continue. How how can I continue doing this? I just want to be done with this. How, how, How are you able to manage this work? And the second worker said, actually, I don't mind this work at all. This work isn't difficult. In fact, I'm looking forward to going back after lunch and coming back tomorrow. This, is, this work is easy. I'm glad to do it. Now, here's the point. How you perceive the future, your view of what is coming in the future can have a radical shape on the way you live today. Your countenance your thinking, your character. And Jesus, throughout this parable and throughout the, the entire all of it Discourse, is causing his hearers to look ahead, to be people who are thinking about what is coming and to be filled by that. Two times in this parable, he says to those first two servants, verse 21 and 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. There's a joyous celebration that is coming. And Jesus is giving a little bit of a preview about that. This is just what he mentioned in the previous parable of the ten virgins. Quote, when the bridegroom came, those who were ready entered into the marriage feast. Here, enter into the joy Of your master. What what a master that he is not only committed to our joy, but to lavish upon his people honor. One author said there's going to be an honors banquet to outdo all honors banquets, at which the servants of the Lord will be lavished and filled with joy. Jesus wants disciples to look forward to the greatest celebration of their lives. And now what's surprising about the celebration is that it's not just about the master. It doesn't just center on the master, but on the joy of the master's servants. And I would remind us of our own confession and catechism, the first question and answer to the larger catechism. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Our God is committed not only to His own glory, but to the joy of His people. And that joy is the reward of God Himself. The psalmist says in Psalm 43, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. That's where joy is had. But it's not only joy that God is committed to gifting to His people. This is a God who lavishes upon His servants... Rewards. Recall what Jesus taught in Luke 17. There he taught about servants as well. He said, when you've done all that you were commanded, you should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Is that true? Sure, that is true. We are unworthy servants. We are called to duty, but perhaps for some believers, that's the primary way or the only way they see themselves, dutiful servants. But in the parable here of the talents, he's giving another angle. We're not only dutiful servants, we're recipients of a master who richly rewards his servants. Did you know that God desires to reward you? To reward his people? Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's not very often in life that we feel flattered, flattered, when people heap appreciation, appreciation, that's what a reward does, when people compliment you, what is Jesus saying here? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance Does this shape our thinking? Notice in the parable that the waiting for Christ is anything but passive. It's very active, and it's demonstrated by what these servants do with what the master gives to them. He calls three servants. He gives to one five talents, to the second two talents, and to the third one talent. A talent was the greatest unit of accounting in Greek money. There's various views on the worth of a talent or weight of a talent. One suggestion is that uh, a talent is worth about 10,000 denarii. We learned earlier in the gospel what a denarius is worth, a fair day's wage. 10,000 denarius, one talent. So even one talent was perhaps equivalent to an entire lifetime of wages. Each servant is given a different number, a different amount of talents. God distributes gifts and talents according to his will. And so even the one who received the one received a tremendous amount. Which reveals not only the kind of master this is, one who is willing to entrust much, who is generous toward his servants, but it reminds us that our calling and our labor and our good works works always begin with the grace of God. It is His grace granted to us, His gift to us, by, then we then, by which we then work out that salvation and carry out those good works. It begins with a master who gives gifts to His people, grants grace. Uh, John Ryle says, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. So the gifts you have, the influence you have, the knowledge you've been given, your time, your money, your reason, your relationships, your Bible. They're all talents from God. Perhaps the most dramatic word in this parable comes in verse 16. It says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. Went at once. It's one word could be translated immediately. It actually comes at the beginning of the verse in in the Greek. For emphasis, immediately, he who received the five talents went and traded with others and made five more. Immediately, it means this servant takes whatever is given him and goes instantly to work with it. He's thrilled, he's thrilled with what's been entrusted to him, that without a moment... He gives himself, he throws himself into the work. He's joyful, he's excited about it. Notice the servant, when given the talent, doesn't respond by saying, Master, could I get just a little bit more talent? No. Or, Master, I kind of like the talent he has. No. He sees the privilege, he senses the significance of the calling placed upon him to invest in the master's goods and assets. Sometimes we might view ourselves as mere audience members observing, looking from outside in at the working of God's kingdom. We're simply in the stands, we're in the seats, we're fans. We might even feel at times like we're in the cheap seats. We're so far from what God is doing, i got to pull out the binoculars and focus in that is a false picture a false view of scripture the real picture is that all of the children of god all the servants of god have been given talent we're all called to enter the arena to take the stage put the uniform on and not only are we called to see the talents that god's given to us to steward these things at the heart of which is the gospel message the good news that the King of all creation has come in and is reconciling people to Himself through the death of His Son on the cross to steward that, that talent, that gift, our time, our resources, relationships, ministry. But there is in this parable a measure of and picture of risk. What is one willing to do? What are you willing to do? to do with the talent that God has given to you. Throughout this gospel, in Matthew, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that following him is by nature a calling of risk. Chapter 4. Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. For so they persecuted the prophets. Chapter 5. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men. They'll deliver you over to the courts and flog you. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. To set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. That The gospel will even divide families. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Chapter 10. The first two servants in verse 16 and 17 go, they immediately begin investing, trading, risking uh, for the kingdom's purpose. But what about the third servant in verse 18? What does he do? Uh, He goes, he digs a hole in the ground, and he buries the talent. Well, it wasn't unusual uh, in our Lord's day uh, to bury valuables. There was no local bank to safeguard valuables. People would bury them in the ground to protect them, to preserve them. And we might think, well, things could have been worse. He could have squandered the talent away. It doesn't seem glaringly that bad. But his action reveals his true heart, his true attitude toward the gift and toward the giver. Our talents aren't meant to be idle or buried. They're to be productive. And when the master comes to settle accounts, we learn about this servant's heart. I think what's deeply important for us is that we're going to use our talents according to our view of the master. Verse 24... He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. How does this servant view uh, his master? I knew you to be a hard man. This servant actually doesn't know his master at all, does he? I knew you to be a hard man. He doesn't know him. He sees him as harsh, cruel, close-handed, close-fisted, unfeeling toward him. This has led the servant not to freely give himself, to invest himself, to close up, uh, to shrink back, to sit on the talent he 's fearful. but there's something else this may mean that some suggest this word "hard I knew you to be a hard man it can also mean strong, capable. Perhaps that's also meant here in the meaning. He actually may be seeking to flatter his master. That is, I knew you were capable, as he says, you're even able to harvest where you didn't sow. The thought being, you don't need me. You can do all things. Frederick Bruner says, A lord commenting on perhaps the servant's thinking, A Lord who can do anything he wants independently of human work, moral agency, or spiritual zeal is a Lord who fundamentally does not need human beings. So the servant buried his talent, thinking little of it and his calling. Well, it's true. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us in that way. But he has graciously invited us into his kingdom to put to use the talents that he has given to us. And I think we should do this in light of the one true servant who in eternity past, the Lord Jesus Christ with his heavenly father, our father, in that covenant of redemption and that agreement, knew the talent, the calling that God had upon him, who would come and enter in into a state of humiliation, into suffering. That was Christ's talent. That was Christ's calling. And here he came, walking amongst man, taking on the form of man, walking the road of suffering, investing in the kingdom of God for our redemption, for the benefit of the people of God, that we might know life and hope. So as we think about our own talents that God has given to us, we should think about them and use them in light of the true servant of God who took upon himself the investment of the talent God had for him uh, for our salvation and redemption. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for the pouring out of your gifts and talents for your people, uh, for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and strengthens us to put to use those things for the benefit of, of your kingdom, for the strength and building up of your church. Uh, We pray, O Lord, that even in this time, we would not shrink back, but, Lord, that we would with confidence trust in you, that, Lord, you would make clear to us those talents granted to us. Lord, we are members of one body. We pray, Lord, that we would know our place and and calling, and, uh, Lord, that we would serve you with joy, uh, anticipating that great final banquet and celebration that is ours, that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, that we would do this fueled by your sufficient mercy in Jesus Christ. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen.